This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. On November 10th, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in a challenge to the Affordable Care Act's requirement that virtually all Americans buy health insurance. The case, known as California versus Texas, was already shaping up to be one of the biggest cases of the term, but it gained an even higher profile during the confirmation hearings for now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Democrats argued that if confirmed, Barrett would vote to strike down the act. Joining me to discuss the case and what Barrett's confirmation might mean for the outcome is someone who is especially well-suited to tackle the job. Lydia Wheeler is a senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law, where she covers healthcare and ERISA litigation. Before that, she covered the Supreme Court for The Hill. Lydia, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. So let's start at the very beginning. We'll get very granular. What is the individual mandate and how was it supposed to operate when the Affordable Care Act was passed? back in 2010? The individual mandate is actually one of three main provisions um, in the Affordable Care Act um, that actually set out to expand access to health insurance coverage. And and it basically requires everyone to buy health insurance or pay a tax penalty. And um, the mandate was actually seen as a tool um, to help stabilize the insurance marketplace um, because the Affordable Care Act does two other really big things here. It requires insurance um, companies to cover all applicants regardless of a pre-existing condition. That's a provision known as guaranteed issue. And it also prohibits insurers from charging people different premiums based on their health status. Um, And that's a provision known as community rating. So basically, Congress, what what they were trying to avoid is um, they didn't want healthy people to go without health insurance and then drive up healthcare costs for people who are sick. Some of our listeners may be thinking, didn't we already do this back in 2012? There was a case about the constitutionality of the mandate, John Roberts, for liberals. What happened in that case? That's right. Um, We have been here before. Uh, This is not the first time uh, that the Supreme Court has heard a case challenging the constitutionality of the law. Um, Back in 2012, there was a case known as the National Federation of Independent Business um, versus Sebelius. Um, And in that case, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the mandate as a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power. Um, The court's majority ruling, which was issued by Chief Justice John Roberts, um, said that the mandate gives individuals a lawful choice um, between buying health insurance or paying a tax. If the court has already upheld the mandate once, some listeners may be thinking, why are we doing this again on Tuesday? Right. So this whole lawsuit um, was sparked by a change that Congress made uh, to the Affordable Care Act in 2017. Um, That was in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, Congress dropped the tax penalty um, in the individual mandate for those who fail to buy insurance down to zero dollars, um, but they left the rest of the law intact here. Um, so this case before the court asks whether the mandate is now unconstitutional because there's no longer a tax penalty. So can you give us a sense of the history of this case, sort of how did it get to the Supreme Court and who are the various players? That's So it's kind of had a little bit of a long road here. Um, Let me start with the players. Uh, So this all started um, with a lawsuit that a group of 18 Republican states uh, led by Texas and also two individuals who live in Texas uh, brought challenging the constitutionality of the law 
after Congress dropped that tax penalty to zero in 2017. Now, the Justice Department is involved, um, and they've switched positions a couple times. Um, They are supporting the states in arguing that the individual mandate is unconstitutional and that the whole law should be invalidated. Um, On the other side of the dispute, we have a coalition of mostly Democratic states led by California um, that stepped in to defend the law after the Justice Department refused to do so. And the Democratic-led House of Representatives is also involved, and they're supporting the coalition, and they'll actually participate in arguments on Tuesday. Um, Now, the case was first heard by Judge Reed O'Connor. He's a federal district court judge for the Northern District of Texas. Um, He threw out the entire law after he found the mandate unconstitutional. Um, And then the case was appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and they basically left the law in limbo. Um, The appeals court ruled that the mandate was unconstitutional, but they failed to answer the other question, which was whether the rest of the Affordable Care Act can survive without it. Um, And and the court actually kicked the case back to Judge O'Connor, and they told him to take another look at the provisions, um, and if any could survive, um, you know, without the mandate. So, So then the parties asked the Supreme Court to review the appeals court decision. So that's where we are. So before the justices, we'll we'll talk about the constitutionality of the mandate in a second, but before they can get to that sort of main event, there is a, you know, on the one hand, a technical legal question, but also a very important question that they have to decide, which is whether or not either the, you know, for lack of a better term, we'll call them the red states or the two individuals who are challenging the mandate have a legal right to sue known as standing. Can you give us just like a 30-second summary, um, and we won't time you, of what the arguments are on both sides of the case. Sure, I'll try. Um, so, so let me start with the two individuals. Um, so they are saying that the mandate requires them to purchase health insurance that they don't want, and that they're being forced to spend money that they otherwise wouldn't. And then you have the Texas-led state coalition here, um, and they say that the mandate is increasing their financial costs and also their regulatory burdens. Um, so, for example, the state is saying that the mandate forces you know, more people onto the state's Medicaid rolls. On the other side, the California-led state coalition, they say that the mandate doesn't force the two individuals to do anything here because nothing happens if they choose not to buy insurance. There's no financial penalty anymore. Um, and that they, they also are saying that the Republican states um, haven't actually substantiated their claims that they are harmed financially by the mandate. So is there any sort of conventional wisdom about how likely the justices are to toss this one on standing? I mean, on the one hand, it'd be a nice little off-ramp to just say, ah, nobody's got a right to sue. We don't have to decide this big legal question. Yeah, I mean, throwing it out on standing would be a really easy way for the court to sidestep what's become like a really political case. Um, The justice could very easily say that the parties don't have a right to sue here because no one has suffered any real injury. Um, If they did that, they wouldn't have to weigh in at all on whether they think the individual mandate is constitutional and if the rest of the law can survive without it. Um, I think there are a lot of uh, law professors who think that they should throw the case out on standing, um, but they say that it's pretty unlikely. So moving on to the mandate itself, and what are the arguments about why it is or is not constitutional in light of the 2017 legislation that zeroed out the penalty for failing to get health insurance? 
Right. So the Texas-led state coalition here says that the mandate's not constitutional anymore because it's no longer a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power and that it now actually reads as an unconstitutional command to buy health insurance. Um, But the states led by California say the mandate has always given Americans just a choice. You know, you can buy insurance or you can pay a tax penalty. And that dropping that penalty to zero dollars didn't actually transform the provision into a command. So as I get older, you know, it's been eight years since the the justices issued their decision in the NFIB case, which, you know, is kind of the blink of an eye to me these days. But uh, the makeup of the court has actually changed quite a bit. Since then, you know, Justice Scalia has passed away. Justice Ginsburg has passed away. Justice Kennedy has retired. So you know, we'll start with with Justice Ginsburg has been replaced. Uh, Justice Ginsburg was in the majority. She voted to uphold the mandate back in 2012. She's been replaced by Justice Barrett. We heard quite a lot during the confirmation hearings about a 2017 uh, law review article that Justice Barrett had written about the mandate. That's right. Um, So Justice Amy Coney Barrett um, joined the court only a little over a week ago, um, cementing the court's conservative majority. I mean, for decades to come because she's fairly young. And um, we know that she's already been skeptical of it, as you mentioned, in that essay um, that was actually published by Notre Dame Law School, where she taught. Um, And she said that the chief justice um, had pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to, to save the statute. That's what she wrote in that, in that essay. Um, she said that he construed the penalty imposed on those without health insurance as a tax, which permitted him to sustain the statute as a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power. But if he had treated the payment as the statute did, which was as a penalty, she said that he would have had to invalidate the statute as, as lying beyond Congress's commerce power. Um, so it seems pretty clear here that Justice Barrett doesn't think that the mandate is constitutional. Um, and I don't expect her you know, to change her mind after Tuesday's arguments here. What about the other justices? Justice Gorsuch replaced Justice Scalia, who was in the dissent. He would have struck down the mandate. And Justice uh, Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy, who was also in the dissent, would have also struck down the mandate. Do we know anything about them? Yeah, we've had a lot of changes on the court um, in a very short period of time, it feels like. Um, But, you know, with Justice Gorsuch, I really don't know if we know a lot about what um, his views are here. You know, there's not a lot for us to to read the tea leaves on. Um, You know, on the other hand, many people have pointed to a dissent that actually Justice Kavanaugh wrote in um, a 2000 D.C. Circuit Court case upholding the mandate. Um, But some law scholars say that his views there have been a little overstated. Um, Basically, uh, he said that the court shouldn't have heard that case at all because of the called the Anti-Injunction Act of 1867, I think, which like basically prevents judges um, from ruling on tax cases until the tax has actually been paid uh, and collected. Um, and he said that Congress could address any potential constitutional problems by either amending the law's language or throwing it out. Um, but he basically said that he leaves the constitutional issues for another day. So I don't know how much we can, you know, pull from that. We'll find out on Tuesday. So if the mandate, if there are five justices who agree that the mandate is now unconstitutional, then we move on and the court has to decide what happens to other provisions of the ACA. And so this is a doctrine called severability, whether or not the mandate can be 
severed from the rest of the ACA. What are the different sort of permutations, I guess, sort of what are the different arguments for and against severability? And and what do we know about the justices' views? Oh, severability. That's a word my editors hate. Um, They don't want want (laughs) me to use that big, yeah, they don't want me to use that big word. Um, But basically, let's talk about, um, so severability doctrine basically says, so if a law contains a provision that's unconstitutional, the doctrine of severability says that a court can cut it that provision out um, unless the legislature would not have intended the remaining parts of the law to function without it. Um, And so we know that the Republican states and the Justice Department here are arguing um, that the mandate is essential to the law and that Congress in in 2010 um, never intended the Affordable Care Act to function without it. Um, But the House and the states led by California here say that if the mandate is now unconstitutional, that it can be severed from the Affordable Care Act. Um, and that the, less, the rest of the law can live on. Um, they say that Congress in 2017 left the remainder of the law intact when they dropped the tax penalty to zero, and that's really a key to what they intended. So I think it'll come down to what Congress intended when, um, whether you're looking at the 2010 or the 2017 Congress. Um, and what's interesting is that there might actually be five votes in favor of severability here. I mean, you have Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, he affirmed the court's severability doctrine last year when the court struck down restrictions on the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but they left the bureau in place. Um, and in that ruling, uh, which Justices Alito and Kavanaugh joined, uh, Roberts said that the court should be using a scalpel rather than a bulldozer when it's curing a constitutional defect. Um, and then there was actually another case last term uh, in which the court struck down a flawed provision in a robocall law um, and severed that from the statute. That majority ruling, surprisingly, came from Justice Kavanaugh. And in the decision, he said constitutional litigation is not a game of gotcha against Congress where litigants can ride a discrete constitutional flaw in a statute to take down the whole otherwise constitutional law. So um, with the court's liberal wing, there could very well be five votes to save the Affordable Care Act here. Is there anything in particular that you'll be listening for uh, at the oral argument on Tuesday? Yeah, so I'm going to be listening to see if the justices bring up the pandemic at all. Um, You know, this is a case that has really high stakes. Um, You know, it's estimated that I think 21 million people could lose their health care coverage if the Supreme Court decides to to strike down the law. And so I'm wondering, you know, how much that'll play into their decision making here. Um, You know, the COVID-19 relief legislation has was also built on the framework of the Affordable Care Act and, and that made vaccines and testing free. Um, so, you know, some law scholars say that that's further proof that Congress never intended the law to actually go anywhere. Um, so I'm going to be watching to see if they ask um, about that. I'm also going to be um, kind of watching to see if they ask it all about standing. You know, if they don't get to that at all and they skip right over it, you know, it might be a sign that they aren't going to just toss out this case on standing. Fascinating and very helpful. Lydia Wheeler, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was, it was fun. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.